standing with me uh, and open up your Bibles to Genesis 37, 1 through 11, as today's scripture reading uh, will be today. Uh, The passage will also be on the screen behind me and on the monitors in front of you. Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other, son of, any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We are sent for what? To carry on Christ's mission, to share with the world who he is and and what he has done. The baton has been passed to us. We are sent like that bird. We have been sent out. It's an urgent mission. And like that bird, it requires tenacious dedication. Just as much and even more, because like that bird, there are real threats that seek to take our mission down. And the threats are many. Some of them arise from the world. Some of them arise from the evil one. Some of them arise from within ourselves. But today I want to talk about one of the biggest threats. I want to talk about a major threat, maybe even the major threat to the mission of the church. And this is what we will see in Genesis 37. So let's turn now there, if you are able, Genesis 37, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 36. Back in January, we introduced this series as stories of grace, stories of transformation, and stories of mission. We've seen stories of grace, God declaring Abraham instantly right in his eyes, not because Abraham earned it, but simply by faith in him. Stories of grace. We've seen stories of transformation. God taking Abraham from fleeing in fear to Egypt, lying about his wife, taking matters into his own hands with Hagar, to then walking up that mountain, willing to give up his son, trusting God to provide. And and God taking Jacob from manipulating his way through life, trying to make deals with God, relying on himself to then... Crying out to God in prayer, humbly depending on Him, 
and humbly seeking reconciliation with his brother. We've seen stories of grace. We've seen stories of transformation. And today is a story of mission. Theirs and ours. But how, how is this passage about mission? Some of you might be familiar with it. We have to remember where we are in the overall progression of the book of Genesis. The whole patriarch section began with God's original call to Abraham back in in Genesis chapter 12 that launched the whole thing. And what God said to Abraham in that original call in Genesis 12 can basically be broken down into three parts. I will give you the promised land. I will give you numerous descendants. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the time we arrive at Genesis 37, where we're at today, those first two parts are essentially in place. It's not that they're fulfilled, by no means, but they're essentially in place. Jacob is finally dwelling in the land, and he has 12 sons. The promised land and numerous descendants, it's in place. So what's left? The third part. The mission to bless the earth. So scholars agree that the final section of Genesis, starting in chapter 37, all the way to the end, focuses more on the mission. And as we walk through our passage today, we will encounter a major threat to that mission and how it relates to our own. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So chapter 37 begins the account of Jacob's sons. It's about all of them and their relationship with one another and the dynamics of that. But in particular, it focuses on Joseph. We pick up with Joseph, age 17, out in the fields with Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. He's much younger than most of his older brothers. He's the 11th son. In fact, the word boy in verse 2 is is most often translated servant. It's likely that Joseph is running around doing errands here and there while his older brothers are busy tending the sheep. If his older brothers were a football team, he would be the young water boy. He's low in position. Then we find out that on one occasion, Joseph is running errands and he witnesses his brothers doing something wrong, mishandling something or cutting corners. And so he runs back and tells his his father, honestly, we don't know his intentions. We don't know if he was snitching on them, trying to get them in trouble, or if, if Jacob had sent him out for that purpose and he was just doing what he was told. We don't know. But we do know that either way, Tension is now brought into the relationship. And it just gets worse. Because one day, out of nowhere, Jacob gives Joseph a robe. It was no ordinary robe. We, we don't quite know what it looks like. 
the word that describes it is not 100% certain. It could, it could mean many colored, like the traditional sense, or it could mean richly ornamented, like we have in the NIV, so like covered with sequins. Or it could mean long-sleeved. You know, we don't know what it looks like, but we definitely know its significance. It set Joseph apart from his brothers. None of the other brothers got a robe like this. Only Joseph. It was just for him. Why would Jacob do this? It says because he loved Joseph more than all of his brothers. Because he was the son that his father had with, with his beloved wife Rachel in his old age. And as soon as his brothers saw it, as soon as they saw Joseph wearing that robe, they knew exactly what it meant. The robe set Joseph apart from them, probably in favor and, and also in status. He was now above them. The water boy ranked above them. And every time they saw that robe, they were reminded of it. And they hated him for it. From that point on, there was no warmth any longer in their interactions. Not a kind word spoken only hostility. And yet it just gets worse. One night Joseph has a dream. So he calls his brother to himself. He decides to share it with them. And he says this in verse 6. Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. In other words, hey guys, I had this dream... And y'all are going to bow down to me. The brother's blood boils. In essence, they fire back. Oh yeah, that's what's going to happen? We're all going to bow down to you, little water boy? That's ridiculous. Notice how their hatred of him intensifies throughout this scene. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. The wedge between them is driven deeper. And it just gets worse. Joseph has another dream, a second dream. This time he calls his brothers and his father to himself and decides to tell them in verse 9, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are bowing down to me. This represents the whole family. Now his whole family will bow down to him. It seemed like too much, even for Joseph's father. And now his brothers not only hated him, it says they were jealous of him. Bitterly resentful, violently envious. One writer puts it like this, describing envy. To envy is to resent someone else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. Moreover, an envier not only resent an envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the very one who has been blessed. And that's exactly where Joseph's brothers were at. Let me just say that I don't think that Joseph is 100% innocent in all this. Sometimes we portray him as this flat character with no faults. But we'll see in this final section that he has a transformation story of his own. And here the impression that we get is detached disregard for his brothers. Maybe even flaunting his status a little. 
He's uncaring and inconsiderate of them. His words may be true enough, but they're like pouring salt on a wound. He's not 100% innocent. In fact, no one in this section is. One commentator says this, It is fair to say that no one in chapter 37 exhibits noble character. Not Jacob with his outright favoritism, Joseph with his detached disregard, and the brothers with their all-consuming hatred and envy. And at the heart of it is basically this. No one is considering the interests of others. No one here is considering the interests of others. Everyone is looking at the world with their me blinders on. It reminds me of James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The root of our conflicts is often our own self-seeking desires. Not considering the interests of others. That's what we see here with Jacob's sons, and that's not considering the interests of others, and that's what we see with ourselves. So in the midst of conflict, we would do well to ask ourselves, what is this fight really about? Whose interests am I fighting for? Is this about me? What do I want more? A win for myself or a win for the relationship? And one of the best ways to do this to check your heart is to stop and pray. It sounds simple, but I want you to know it makes a difference. To just stop and pray and check your heart. I got this advice before marriage, and it's not that I'm 100% figured it all out, but I can testify that it does make a real difference to stop, check your heart, and pray. And not only in marriage, but in other relationships. When the elders disagree, we have found out that the key to unlocking it is often to just stop right there and pray together. To check our hearts. Whose interest is this about? This is Christ's church after all. In the coming week, many of us in this room will face conflict. That's, that's the way life is. So I want to encourage us to stop and pray. To allow God to check our hearts, to show us our me-blinders. Whose interests are we really after, honestly? No one in Jacob's family was considering the interests of others. And the result was an ugly situation. But it just gets worse. Sometime later, Joseph's brothers had left to graze the sheep near Shechem, about 50 miles away. And Jacob, the father, starts to get curious about them and Maybe even he wants to check up on them a little. I mean, they had done wrong before. So he decides to send Joseph. And it doesn't seem like a good idea to send Joseph to his brothers so far away, so far out alone. But Joseph agrees to go. Maybe they figured, yes, there were hard feelings. But how bad could it be? They were brothers. So Joseph sets out, wearing his new robe, of course. And after a few days, he arrives in Shechem. But there's no sign of his brothers. A stranger actually finds him lost and wandering in a field. It's a picture of how vulnerable Joseph is. Stranded, 
far away from home, not knowing what lies around the corner, not knowing where he is. And then the stranger actually sends Joseph even farther to Dothan, another day or two away. We get an uneasy feeling as Joseph is going farther and farther and farther away from his father's protection. And then Joseph's brothers probably spotted him before he saw them. No doubt they knew it was him from way far away because they could see that robe. That unmistakable robe. That robe. And then it hit them. This was their opportunity. So far away, no one would know what happened to him. In verse 19, we hear them say to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and and we will see what will become of his dreams. They want to kill him and his little dreams with him. Their voices roar, but then Reuben interrupts them. Wait. You see, he wanted to save Joseph's life, but at the same time, he didn't want to take a stand against his brothers. So he tries to walk this line. He tells his brothers basically, listen, guys, don't get his blood on your hands and be guilty of that. Just throw him in the pit and let him die himself. Reuben was secretly planning on coming back later and and rescuing Joseph out of the pit. Maybe he felt compassion for him, or maybe he knew as the oldest son he would be responsible before his father. And as the oldest son, the brothers listened to him. The momentum stops a little. But still we see them plotting their attack against Joseph. As Joseph nears, we watch as his face suddenly fills with panic. He cries out in fear as he sees his brothers rage in their faces, charging towards him. He has nowhere to turn. Imagine the look of confusion and fear as his brothers descended upon him. He cries out, what? What are you doing? Wait! Please! They stripped him of his precious robe, the symbol of their scorn, and they threw him into a deep pit. Pain shot through him as his body struck the ground. He was alone, desperate, and left to die. Betrayed by his brothers. Notice the stark contrast between verses 24 and 25. The brothers throw their younger brother down into a pit, then left him to die, and then they sat down to eat. Like, come on guys, let's go get a grab, grab a bite to eat. It's cold and uncaring. It's like nothing happened. And, and the food itself was actually probably brought by Joseph. And later on in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 42, we find out that Joseph from, was crying out, desperately pleading with them for his life. He was begging them. But they just kept eating. Just then a band of travelers appeared on the horizon, coming down the road. At first they're called Ishmaelites, but then they're called Midianites because Ishmaelites was the broad term and Midianites was the specific ethnicity. Okay. They were headed along the route to trade goods in Egypt. And then Judah got an idea. When Reuben, with Reuben probably out watching the flock, Judah took charge. 
What if we sold him? He says to his brothers. Seriously, guys. If we just left him to die, we'll walk away from this empty-handed. But if we sell him, we'll not only get rid of him, but we'll also walk away with a little bit of cash in our hands. It's a win-win. Besides, he is our brother. I don't think this is Judah being compassionate. I think this is Judah being greedy. He wanted to make some money out of it. And it worked. When the Midianite traders come by, we watch as Joseph, as his brothers lift Joseph out of the pit and agree to a price of 20 shekels. I imagine Joseph was begging with his brothers, utterly desperate, please, please don't do this. As he was tied to a camel and led away. But hardened by hatred, his brothers didn't care. They sold him into slavery and then they walked away. Later that day, we watch as Reuben sneaks back from the field and comes up to the pit. Perhaps he says, Joseph, Joseph. But here's nothing. Looking closer, he sees that the pit is empty. He was too late. He didn't know that his brothers would sell Joseph into slavery. His plan failed. If only he had just taken a stand and not compromised. He tried to have one foot in both sides to please his conscience and to please his brothers at the same time. And that often doesn't work. Let me just pause here and say, at work and at school and with friends, we have to decide in our hearts ahead of time to follow our convictions and not try to have one foot in both sides. It's like that scene from Elf where he tries to put one foot on the ground and one foot on the escalator. And it doesn't work. It never does. Stand firmly planted. Don't be like that. Reuben drops to his knees and tears his clothes in grief. He runs to his brothers. The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? In other words, how will I face my father? So now the brothers have to cover it up. They decide to go with their original plan by taking that precious robe, that unmistakable robe, ripping it up and slathering it with the blood of a goat. And notice how cold they were when they send the robe ahead to their father Jacob. And this is what they say in verse 32. This is what we found. Please identify if it is your son's robe or not. Not our brother, your son. As soon as Jacob looked at it, his heart sank. There's no mistaking that robe, that precious robe. There's only one person it could belong to. He cries out, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Just the thought of it. His son... And the brothers just stood there and let him think that. They let him think and imagine that his beloved son had been torn to pieces viciously by a wild animal. That was the last thought Jacob had of his son. And overwhelmed with despair, he tears his robe, he puts on sackcloth, and he goes into deep mourning. And we read that the brothers hypocritically pretend 
to comfort him. Like, I'm so sorry, Dad. When all the while they knew the truth. And when I look at this, I can't help but think that part of this is not only getting revenge on Joseph, it's also getting revenge on Jacob, their father. They let him feel the pain. And Jacob responds by rejecting everyone. He pushes everyone away, including his daughters. It's as if his other children don't exist. Eclipsed by Joseph, he says, I will mourn every day until I die. The last thing we hear of him in this chapter is weeping. It says, verse 35, Thus his father wept for him. See, the chapter just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's the picture we're left with at the close of this passage. This passage chronicles the complete unraveling of Jacob's family. It's like at the beginning of the chapter, we have this picture of Jacob's family, the twelve sons and the daughters. It's perfect. But then a small crack appears. Tension enters the picture. And then a deep break. And then by the end, it's shattered into pieces. The brothers are torn apart. Joseph is sold into slavery. And Jacob is alienated from everyone around him. The relationships are completely unraveled. And if there is one aspect left of Abraham's original call that is yet to fall into place, the mission to bless the families of the earth, we are left with this gaping question, how will such a fractured family bless the families of the earth? The family is torn apart. How will they be a vehicle of God's blessing to the earth? How will they spread it to the world if they can't spread it to one another? The major threat to the mission of God that we find in this passage is the deeply divided family that God is seeking to use. They are supposed to be the vehicle. The major threat is their inability to get along. The mission of God in Scripture starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation and is passed on to Jesus' followers after His resurrection. In fact, when Jesus commissions His followers in Matthew 28, His words echo Abraham's original call. We too are called to bless the families of the earth, to bless the nations. How? By sharing Christ with them and all the goodness, beauty, redemption, and restoration that comes with that. That's the fulfillment of the blessing. And that's been entrusted to us. And yet we face the very same threat as Jacob's family. A major threat, if not the major threat, to our mission will be a deeply divided family that God is seeking to use. The local church. It will be our inability to get along. When the church family is fractured, the church's mission is threatened. And I'm not making this up. That's why we see such an emphasis in Scripture on God's people being one. I think of Jesus' prayer for us. Just before He was crucified, He prayed for His future followers. In John 17, 21, He said this, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me, that they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think of Paul in Philippians 1, 27, talking about the church striving as one for the faith of the gospel. 
Because when the, thir- when, when the church family is fractured, the church's mission is threatened. But the opposite of that, the opposite of what we see in Jacob's family, is to love one another. Isn't it? Isn't that what's been absent in this whole scene? The opposite is to love one another. So I'll say it this way. Essential to our witness in the world is our love for one another. We can't let ourselves become like the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 who were doing so many things, this and this and this, and yet they lost their first love, which I'm convinced means their love for God and their love for one another because those two things can never be separated in Scripture. We need to love one another. In a passage about our witness in the world, John 15, Jesus tells His disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. We need to love one another. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul thanks God that, that the love of every single person in that church for one another is increasing. We need to love one another. But what does that look like? What does that look like for us? I'd like to encourage you to, to go home and pray about this, but I'd also like to offer a few things. Because it could look like so much. It looks like tearing down the walls that naturally get built when we only interact with the same people week after week. It means asking, who is feeling excluded? Who have I not talked to? Who do I need to seek out, even if that means stepping out of my comfort zone? If I love you, I will not want you to feel unwelcome. It looks like inviting people into our homes and into our lives to get to know one another more deeply. If I love you, I will want to know who you are. I I will not want to keep you at a distance, but invite you in. It can be as simple as inviting people over to share a meal. And not just people that we do know very well, but also people who we don't yet know very well. Loving one another also looks like forgiveness, as we saw last week. Seeking forgiveness, and offering forgiveness, and even seeking to offer forgiveness. Because that's what God did for us. He was the offended one. And yet He didn't wait for us to come to Him. He came to us to make it right. Even when we are the offended one, we seek to offer forgiveness. It means that there should not be any relationship in this church where unforgiveness stands between you. And this is not just me telling you my opinion. This is what God tells us. Colossians 3.13 forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive loving one another also looks like laying down our lives for one another not just in the big things but also in the little things sometimes the little things are actually harder sometimes it's easier to say I'll take a bullet for you if you ever needed it than it is to say I'll be there to help you on Wednesday night but the little things can be so significant Lisa and I witnessed this firsthand. When we moved into our house about two years ago, Zoe was like a, a week old. And we had two weeks to get this house ready. And there was a lot of work to be done. And I got to tell you, we were blown away by how people in this church laid down their lives to make it happen. And do you know how we felt? Loved. 
We need to love one another. What are we doing if we don't? Really, what are, what are we doing if we don't love one another? If we don't love one another radically, we will be no different than a Power Rangers convention where they all like each other because they all have the same interests. Like Jesus says, in essence, ordinary love makes us no different than the world. And, and the quality of our love causes the world to know that we are the disciples of Jesus. We need to love one another. We, as a church, have been called to live out a radical, beautiful, and powerful love in simple and profound acts. And this will be essential to our witness. It was for the early church. I love this document from the second century A.D. that talks about how unbelievers would look at the church and say, see how they love one another. That was the impression. See how they love one another. May the same be true for us. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. Not wait for the person to say the right things or be easy to interact with. See how they love one another. Not wait for the person to win their love. See how they love one another, even through conflict. See how they love one another, even when it's not easy to get along. See how they love one another across racial lines, economic lines, political lines, social ability, mental functioning, personality differences. See how they love one another. And I want you to know it's easy to lose sight of this. Man, I was, as I studied this, I was convicted this week that I need to come before the Lord and say, renew my love. Good news family, I'm sorry for the times I've been caught up doing this and this and this and distracted from my simple love for you as my family. Is anyone else, is anyone else with me? We need to love one another. I don't know where you're at, but I invite you to come before the Lord today and say, renew my love. Build my love. Let it abound more and more. It's so important. We need each other. Otherwise, the church family will be fractured and the church's mission is threatened. Like Jacob's family. How will Jacob's family be used by God? How will they come back to that love for one another? What's the solution? The final verse of our passage foreshadows the solution. It gives us a little ray of hope at the end of this passage. You see, the whole passage ends pointing forward to Joseph. Somehow, the solution will center upon Joseph. And our solution, the church's solution to love one another, will center upon a greater Joseph. He's the fulfillment of the trajectory that Joseph's life points to. You see, he too was betrayed by his brothers. Some rejected him out of envy. Someone else rejected him out of greed and sold his life for a few shekels. And yet, like Joseph, in his, rede- in his rejection, he brought about deliverance. At the cross, Jesus died for our sin, our rejection of Him. And yet it was God's plan to bring about our deliverance. He rose again that by faith in Him, we can be reconciled to God and as a result, reconciled to one another. He died for us, the ones who betrayed Him and rejected Him. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. 
And when we are shown such a radical love, when we know that God loves us so radically, we are given a radical love for one another. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus makes it possible to live out a radical, beautiful, and powerful love. Depend on Him. In Him, the threat is overcome.